0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Pantassi. My guest today is Michael Goebel, the author of Anti-Imperial Metropolis, Interwar Paris and the Seeds of Third World Nationalism. And the book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Hi there, Michael. Hello there. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France?
1: Yeah, so I'm originally from Germany and, um, I studied history first in Germany and, and later in the UK. But I'm originally a historian of Latin America, more specifically Argentina. My, my first book, which was based on my PhD, which I did at University College London, was on nationalism in 20th century Argentina. Um, so, so really, um, I arrived at this topic and, and this book in a, in a funny way. Which was that I first became interested in Paris as, as a site, um, for exchange, um, for Latin American intellectuals in, in the 20th century and specifically in, in the interwar period, which had interested me also in, in my first book. Um, so, so I was originally looking for, uh, Latin American nationalists and anti-imperialists in, in into war Paris and and they still linger on in the book if you like but in in many ways they are the odd ones out because mm. as I descended into into French archives I found very little on Latin Americans and in particular very very little political information on on uh, Latin Americans in French archives I did find things you know related to drunk driving and and, and things like that but that didn't interest me so much. But, but I did find, um, a lot on, on French colonial subjects. So, so really the, the whole project, um, gradually became modified. And I looked less and less at at Latin Americans and more and more at at French colonial subjects in in interwar Paris and and their politics, largely because the archives told me so much more about them than than they did about Latin Americans for obvious reasons, <laughs> uh, which was that that the French state had had a security interest in, in in the politics of French colonial subjects, but not really a security interest in the politics of of Latin American expats in Paris.
0: What made Paris such a special place in this period of time, with respect to the themes and issues you're interested in?
1: So, first of all, I suppose uh, you know Paris has always and still is a special place in mm-hmm. so many ways that you know stirs everybody's imagination. I I quote from a book um, by by Jamaican-born author Claude McKay, who says that that Paris was the patrie of the imagination of so many people, and that's and that's not. Necessarily specific to to the interwar period, um, Walter Benjamin famously called it the capital of the 19th century, and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, but but the interwar period is 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 different from from earlier periods in that for the first time, significant numbers of um, non Europeans, including French colonial subjects, come to the city, which which has a lot to do with World War One, because the French. State you know as as you know recruited um, many uh, people from from its colonies as as workers and soldiers for the war effort, and most of them were forcefully repatriated at the war 's end but some of them remained um, some of them went went to their home countries but then back to Paris for labor reasons um, so so it, it is it really marks the the beginning of much later. Um, post-colonial migrations to, to Paris that, that really, um, that really took up, uh, momentum after, after World War Two, And, and it was, of course, um, in the interwar period, as it was earlier, a, a city that, that was in, uh, terribly important for, Global intellectual exchange for students, um, not only of course from from non-European countries, but but many from you know Eastern and Southern Europe as as well. So it, it was it was um, much more so than other European cities at the time. Um, a very cosmopolitan place, perhaps almost as much as New York. By 1930, it had it had 10 percent foreign-born population. Um, which excludes people from French colonies who technically weren't, uh, foreigners, but French mm-hmm. colonial subjects and therefore they don't make it into censuses normally as foreigners. So, but if you count them in, then you, you get, you know, a percentage like 13% of, of people born outside of metropolitan France living in, in the Paris region. Um, mm-hmm. which, which clearly makes it Europe's more, most cosmopolitan city at the time. And 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 it plays, it tends to play a larger role than London, let alone you know Brussels or or Berlin, in in the cultural imagination of people outside of Europe.
0: You've mentioned a couple of times now, Michael, the numbers, and I'm just wondering, how do we know for the interwar years uh, when we're talking about numbers of non-Europeans and distinguishing between colonial subjects and foreigners? Where do where do we get our numbers from for this period?
1: From a range of sources, really, but uh, most of it are estimates. But but once you read ten of them, sure, um, you 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 know you can first of all build an average, and you also get a feeling, you know, which are the outliers in in the estimates. So, um, so so they do add up to to not reliable numbers, but you know a range of numbers that you think will be likely more or less true. Um, but, uh, some are from censuses that that counts mostly for foreigners um, mm-hmm. such as Chinese and Latin Americans. They do pop up in the census and that 's presumably more or less uh, reliable it 's a lot more difficult for for French colonial subjects but since the the French state and in particular the colonial ministry built such a huge surveillance apparatus, they were constantly busy guessing numbers also. Um, and, 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 and they did keep track of, of who came into the country and who went out, more or less. Although you do get um, a, a low degree of clandestine immigration, um, but, but nothing that would usually distort the numbers.
0: In the introduction of the book, you described the project as much more of a social history of migration than an intellectual history of anti-imperialism. So I, I want to ask you about this orientation of the book uh, as a social history.
1: It's one of the major arguments of of the book, and of course, it it is an argument that works better for for some of the groups I look at than than it does for others, and and it's also an argument that actually works better for Paris than it would for London, hmm. um, where the where, where, so in London, if you get people from the British Empire, they tend to come from the elites, and they tend to go to London not for labor reasons. In, in Paris, that's different. You, 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 get significant labor migrations, in particular from, from, uh, Africa and especially from, from North Africa. And it is for those people that, that the argument works best. Um, the argument that, that this is a social history of migration or that the his, the social history of migration matters for the, the long-term history of, uh, national movements in, in Africa and, and Asia that That argument um so f- first of all that that works better for for some people than than for others, but it's also an argument that 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 is unusual because most of the time um people like Ho Chi Minh, who of course comes up in the book because he he spent significant mm-hmm. time in paris um, in in the 1920s, are treated as you know later politicians and at the time perhaps intellectuals who in paris read lenin so if, if there was a liter- literature about, uh, let's say, Ho Chi Minh in Paris in the 1920s, it looked at him mostly from the angle of intellectual and, and political history. And I, I looked at it largely because the sources allowed me to do so. From from the angle of a social history of migration, so I'm less interested in, in prominent individuals uh, such as Ho Chi Minh, although he pops up in the book, and much more in the life of communities and and ordinary people, which could include students uh, who went to Paris, um, and 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 how their experience of migration of you know, different legal statuses um, of unequal treatment shape their political ideas. Um, that is really what, what I look at, and that is what I mean by social history of migration and, and how this became important mm-hmm. eventually for the intellectual history of, of nationalism and decolonization.
0: To the extent that this is both a social history and a, and a history that takes place at a very specific time in the city, would you also characterize this study as a social geography? And I'm just thinking here of the... You know opening pages of the book where I really felt situated in the city around place d'Italie. <laughs> and i and I was thinking as I was reading and you come back to this a, a, a number of times in the book about which city which Paris and Paris is you're engaging with and the spaces of the city and neighborhoods and some of those kinds of things. do you see your book as a as a contribution along those lines
1: let's say i I wanted it to be. <laughs> Although, although I'm not sure to to what extent I I, I succeeded um, in 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 doing this. I I as you say, in the book on several occasions I try to you know I I give some maps of of where for example Algerian workers lived mm-hmm. or Vietnamese workers lived in in Paris, um or or I give examples of specific meeting places um or you know conjectures of how they might have met because. Uh, their, their daily circuits in the city possibly brought them to the same places, uh, some prominent industrial places like, like the Renault Citroën factory where mm-hmm. lots of colonial workers worked and presumably met and so forth. The, the, the problem is, um, well, and, and, and I did some other things also, looking at addresses and specific hotels where successions of migrants who were brought there through networks, uh, were housed. So, f- for example, um, I, I, I could find specific addresses, um, apartments where throughout the interwar years in the 1920s, a succession of Vietnamese uh, workers workers lived, who were all obviously brought there through networks. So someone goes back to Vietnam and someone else comes instead and moves into the same apartment, let's say. Um, so, so so I looked at, at the geography of the city in, 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 in those ways. And the sources, again, allowed me to do that. And, and I enjoyed doing that but but i i wasn 't always sure at the end of the day how much of that geographical focus is ornamental to the argument let's mm. say um, because you 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 can pin down specific uh, let's say theaters or 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 meeting places that the Communist Party used and where they went and so forth but but i 'm not so sure how much this has to do with the uh, geographic history of Paris per se, or the urban history of of Paris. So the the short answer to the question is I I tried, I wanted this to be also an urban history of Paris. And in the end, I think it was less an urban history of Paris than, than I initially hoped for, because I often felt that those geographical questions actually tell me less about the, you know, the eventually political history that I wanted to arrive at than than I initially hoped for.
0: I also wanted to ask you, Michael, about the way that the book is positioned with respect to studies of colonialism in the beginning of the book and then throughout, you come back to some of the terminology. Um, You explore questions of, you know, how we think about imperialism versus colonialism, how we think about the global, globalization. Could you say a little bit more about the theoretical frameworks that you're drawing on and what type of response the book is to uh, some of these terms and concepts,
1: yeah, absolutely. So, I'll, I'll try to answer specifically to the two questions about anti-imperialism and and the term global, and and in particular, in, in uh, you know, in in with regards to the term anti-imperialism, which of course is also in in, in the book title. Uh, mm-hmm. Like like so many other terms and concepts I use, it came out of a pragmatic choice, which I then try to justify in, in a, a more theoretical, profound way, um, so f- first of all I, I, I prefer to to speak of anti imperialism because it was a term that I found a lot more in in the sources than mm-hmm. anti colonialism um, but also because because the book includes, as I said earlier, people who are not from formerly colonial domains, in particular Latin Americans but also uh, Chinese. Student workers, which is which is a prominent, although numerically small, migration to Paris, because because from that group of, of Chinese student workers, then hailed later very prominent Chinese uh, communists such as uh, Zhao Enlai, and and since they don't come from formerly colonial countries, uh, they they wouldn't have been referred to at the time nor later as as anti-colonialists primarily, but used the term anti-imperialist. So, so first of all, um. I preferred to speak of imperialism because it was a term that I found more often in the sources, but also because I felt it was a more capacious category mm. um, compared to, to colonialism. With it, I wanted to also then make a theoretical intervention in showing that there were connections between people who come from the French Empire and people who come from uh, formerly independent countries who count as as foreigners. One of the examples I give in the book are, are Haitians who are again numerically a very small group in Paris, but they're very important as brokers for uh, Pan-African concerns in, in, in Paris. Also because they have access to, as foreigners, they have access to, to diplomatic channels. So they can, you know, speak, for example, on behalf of Cameroonian nationalists before the League of Nations and, and things like that. So I, I wanted to show in many ways the overlap between Nationalists or anti-imperialists from formerly independent countries such as Haiti or Latin American countries or, or the Chinese who often worked as brokers for, for proxies or spokesmen for, for the Vietnamese community. In terms of the global, I'm skeptical, like other people, about how useful that, that category is because, um, to so many uh, listeners or, or readers, it, it conjures up the notion that you want to cover the entire globe, or that you speak about phenomena that you think are equally spread across the globe, which of course is not the case at all. And, mm-hmm. and, and in so many ways, I want to show, even though I treat, you know, let's say Latin Americans and Algerians and and Chinese and Vietnamese all in one book. In in so many ways, the the, the book is meant to to show. The, the discrepancies, uh, between these, these different group and, and, and the huge differences and how those discrepancies and differences became productive via comparisons and contrasts that people drew between the status of, let's say, French Antillians and, uh, Vietnamese and the like, because, because they were so different. So when I speak of global, I don't, I don't want to make a claim, you know, that, that there was some sort of, uh, evenness uh, in the spread of anti-imperialists uh, anti-imperialism across the globe, because they were all in equal measure and in and in similar ways victims of of imperialism. No, there were there were stark differences, and they they became important. and And th- this is how I use the term global.
0: So, Michael, in bringing to the history a focus on Paris and the metropole, at least as the site where. These ideas and communities are interacting and moving about. One could make the argument that you're restoring the center. Could you say something about how you negotiate that idea in the book of focusing on Paris, focusing on the European context, and you know what you mention at least once in the book as sort of being making a contribution to the project of provincializing Europe?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um... It's a tough question to answer. So, so first of all, um, well, let me begin this way: there, there, there was a challenge in the book because, as I said earlier, I, I'm, I'm by training a historian of of Latin America. <laughs> so, and and I now begin to to research and eventually write about people from, let's say, Algeria, West Africa, Vietnam, and. And my, my background in, in Vietnamese history was, was lacking. And, and I was acutely conscious of, of the problem that I might underestimate the importance of, uh, of, of local roots of feelings against, against colonialism. And, mm-hmm. and they are extremely important. So, uh, but, but my only way of dealing with this since, since I looked at Paris, Um, was by introducing a few caveats, like, you know, who, whoever went through forced labor in West Africa or in the Chinese prisons needed no lessons uh, in why colonialism, um, had its problems to say, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um. So, 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 so I did not want to minimize the importance of local roots in, in feelings, um, against, against colonialism, which I think still are crucial. On the other hand, I, I wanted to ask a question, and I think I did ask a question of, of why a place like Paris became so crucial in in informing so many of, of later post-colonial elites. And and that was well known, of course, before the book, you know, that people like, like Ho Chi Minh um, is actually an exception among the people that I look at because he was, he was in many ways politicized before he arrived in Paris, but, but so many of the other people, you know, went through a process of politicization in in paris, and I wanted to to account for that and so i I bring back the center in terms of place in, in, in that I look at at Paris and how paris became such a such a what i call a hatchery for for those for those post colonial elites but i don 't necessarily bring back the center in terms of looking at how french people taught you know colonial subjects about about uh, nationalism which was which was an older argument of of the nationalism literature really that that you know nationalism was european invention and then and then people who went to to europe picked up the idea and then brought it back back home but it, it really was elaborated um by europeans who then taught uh, or trains people from the colonies to then re import it back to their country so and, that, and i don 't really look at European actors as much as I do look at at the experience of non European actors in, in in Paris. so I bring the center back spatially if you like, but not so much mm-hmm. in terms of the actors because because I, because I uh, almost exclusively look at at actors from outside of Europe, which actually is is a criticism that, that has also been been leveled against the where are the <laughs> French actors in the book and and that's true you know some like Henri Barbus make their appearance and 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 they are important of course but but they they don't really um have have much centrality in the book so so one could also say you know you, you should have looked much more at, at at French people than than you do well, and that's
0: always a, a potential Conversation about any book, I suppose, that especially one that's trying to deal with so many different uh, communities and and uh, and actors. Um, just with respect to sources, Michael, you mentioned in the introduction, you know, that you looked at over fifteen archives in eight countries, and I wanted to ask what types of different materials you're using to access the everyday lives of uh, both foreign foreigners and colonial subjects um, in the capital, in the French capital. What were some of the challenges that you faced in Locating materials or working with different types of perspectives in the sources that you found
1: yeah, thanks for the question. I always love to speak about the sources because mm-hmm. because they were really the the bedrock of this project. so I did look at a lot of different uh sources and and as you said in different countries which which was um also important for for the latin americans and and in particular people from um independent countries. Which included then also, you know, some personal correspondences and personal archives, periodicals, memoirs, um, sometimes published books and like. But the bulk of the material are French official sources, some of them from the French foreign ministry, which, again, was important when it came to foreigners rather than colonial subjects. Some of them are from the French Interior Ministry, which was, of course, important for policing and also important for Algerians because uh, officially Algeria didn't fall into the remit of the colonial ministry. But other than that, the bulk of the material comes from um, surveillance documents in the in the uh, French colonial ministry archive in in Aix-en-Provence. Mm-hmm. So those, those are essentially police records and. Uh, by and large, they are daily surveillance records of undercover agents that were infiltrated into anti-colonial movements in the metropole, and they produced almost daily surveillance reports to, to their superiors. And that is where, numerically speaking, uh, the bulk of the, the material comes from. And police records, of course, first of all, they're a fascinating source because, because, because you, you can, as a historian, you, it's the closest you get to being a detective as, as a historian, in particular as you try to uncover the identities of those undercover agents, which, which were infiltrated in those, in those movements. And they're a very ambiguous source. On, on the one hand, they, of course, reflect the prejudices, sometimes the, the, the racism, and, and the concerns and goals of, of the French authorities. On the other hand, since, since those are undercover agents who in many cases were recruited by the French state when they ran into trouble with the law or mm. in exchange for French citizenship or the like. So undercover agents who had formed part of those movements before they became undercover agents and, and you get some. For example, a Malagasy war veteran who, who first um, drew, draws close to, to anti-colonial movements then becomes recruited as an undercover agent then all, all along for about 10 years remains a faithful member of the French Communist Party becomes a president of some of those movements and you get the feeling that actually the the, the, the man continues to be genuine in his anti-colonial persuasions mm-hmm. while he's doing a little spying on the side. So, 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 so the sources are very ambiguous in, in the sense that they, they are a funny blend of the perspective of activists themselves, you know, mixed up with with, with the viewpoint of, of the French authorities.
0: I want to move on now to, to ask you about sort of the arc of the chapters in the book. And you, you describe the book as moving from the local social history of non-Europeans to get to the intellectual history of anti-imperial nationalism. So in the first few chapters of the book, Michael, You outline non-European migrations to interwar Paris, and you make the point that the different social, political, legal relationships between these different groups who arrive um, in France and in the capital showed up the inconsistencies and fault lines in the imperial order. Could you say a little bit more about how that worked?
1: Yeah so f- first of all uh, there, there there's of course a distinction that I mentioned a few times already which is between foreigners and and colonial subjects or colonials rather because not all not all people from French colonies are subjects some are citizens mm-hmm. um antillians in in particular but also some people from from Senegal so first of all there there there's a, there's a fall line between foreigners and and colonial people from from French colonies most of the foreigners I deal with are Latin Americans and, and Chinese. And they're theoretically treated in the same way as Germans would be treated, um, or North Americans, U.S. citizens would be treated in, in, in toward Paris. Um, but they don't necessarily have similar social profiles. So Latin Americans are mostly wealthy, uh, expats. Chinese are mostly relatively poor, uh, workers, uh, who, or some of them are worker students. So, so legally, they, they are all foreigners, but there's big differences between them in, in terms of their social profiles. And then it becomes a lot more complicated when you look at people from French colonies because, mm-hmm. because they are very different. Uh, they're very diverse and heterogeneous among themselves in terms of, well, their numbers, their social profiles, and their legal status. First of all, if you talk about numbers, then North Africans are by far the, the largest group something like 70 or 80,000 by 1930. Most of them from Algeria, but also quite a few Moroccans and then all people from all other French colonies are never really more than 15,000 all altogether. Uh, among them, Vietnamese West Africans Antillians, um, and, and, and very few from, from other regions. Uh, North Africans and West Africans are mostly poor and working class. The Vietnamese have quite a few students among them from wealthy bourgeois backgrounds, and particularly in southern Vietnam. And are also much more wealthy than 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 Africans. They have lawyers, dentists, doctors among them. Some of them are older. There are more women among them, also. Uh, most North Africans and West Africans are are male. And then there's different legal statuses uh, depending on where exactly you you come from. Um, so Antillians in particular uh, are, are different in that they are French citizens, which entitles them to a whole host of rights that that let's say Algerians and by Algerians I mean Algerian Muslims can can only dream of. Um, so so there, there, there's really an enormous patchwork of people who are very different in, in in their status and, and social profile and in their reasons for coming to France and you know the areas where they live, the groups they mingle with, the occupations they have, and 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 many other things. Um, so so and that discrepancy over time becomes something like an engine of comparison between different groups. So one one group I look at is founded in 1920, immediately after the war is a group that unites essentially an Antillian lawyers who are French citizens with Malagasy war veterans. And, and Antillian lawyers essentially become spokesmen for Malagasy war veterans who claim French citizenship, um, for their, for their war service. So, so this is a typical example of one of those groups where people start to extrapolate or Malagasis in this case start to extrapolate from the Antillian case, and say, look, if they have French citizenship, why don't we? And and you can find lots of examples of where groups join in in different political associations and begin comparing and and contrasting their own legal situation, social profile, home country to that of others, which 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 essentially gives them new ideas. Let's say so. This is how this this this, this discrepancy or this very uneven landscape becomes fruitful for, for political ideas.
0: In this first part of the book, Michael, where you're really looking at everyday life for these various groups uh, in, in Paris, there's a really interesting way in which you're moving between considering private uh, life, sexual relations, family life, generation, you know, the children of some of these uh, people who arrive in Paris, popular culture, Uh, the landscape of, you know, where people eat and the music they listen to and where they go uh, to socialize, community associations. And there's sort of this continuum from the private to the public. And you're also charting the story of politicization. So could you say a little bit about the interaction between public and private uh, in this first part of the book, and also between culture and politics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as, as you said, those, especially chapter two and three, they, mm-hmm. they try to follow this logic of politicization. And I look a lot at mutual aid associations, um, and formally apolitical associations, which really claim to and do cater to everyday concerns of people from, from the colonies in the, in the metropole. And many of those uh, associations, which, uh, you know, provide medical care or offer legal advice if you want to open a Vietnamese restaurant let's say and counter stumbling blocks in particular of a legal kind if 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 this whole project or this whole book taught me anything uh, about history in in very general ways it, it is how how terribly important legal history is <laughs> And so, so those, those mutual aid associations offer legal advice and the like. And in the process, obviously realize that, you know, ethnic origin and, and those whole regimes of legal exception that rule over their home countries matter in order to decide what you're allowed to do and not to do in, in, in the metropole. So those formerly apolitical associations gradually enter a logic of of politicization, and I try to show that with with several examples. One one interesting example has to do with intimacy, sexuality, and in particular marriage, um, which you just hinted at. So, <laughs> at some point, I I found that. So 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 first of all, most of those I'm talking now about uh, communities from from the French colonies, rather than foreigners. So so if, if you look at North Africans, West Africans, but also Vietnamese. The vast majority of them are, are men. And we're talking about something like 98% in their twenties. And so, you know, demographically speaking, of course, this, this favors contact with, with French women. In, in spite of this demographic situation, actually such, such marriages are, are pretty rare. And, and the French state tries to discourage them. Mm-hmm. Um, with some success, it seems, um, if one can speak of success here, um, tries, tries to discourage them. And, and again, this, for some activists, proves a, an engine of their politicization. Um, when, when they have to familiarize themselves with, you know, f- f- civil law. Um, due to their colonial background and, and stumbling blocks to marriage with, with French women or what happens to their children? Are they allowed to go back to Vietnam, let's say, and, and the like. And I eventually found that, and particularly if you look at the leadership of, of political anti-colonial organizations, um, a vast, uh, majority of those leaders are married or live with French women when very few of the rank and file people, let's say, are, are, are married or live with, with French women. So, so, so this told me something about how, you know, intimate contact with, with in, in this case, French women seems to have played a role in, in politicization.
0: In one of the chapters of the book, I think it's chapter five, Michael, you, I mean, obviously, all of what's happening in the book is connected in various ways to what's going on in the big picture of, or the other picture, I suppose, of international relations and diplomacy and crises and wars. I mean, these things are happening while the book is happening. Um, but in chapter five, you you look at a few key moments uh, of you know diplomatic watersheds and crises: the Paris Peace Conference, uh, the War, Um and the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. And you have this notion that you pursue in this chapter of shadow diplomacy could you tell us what that means and and how you're using that idea in in that chapter and maybe at other points in the book
1: yeah so 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 i look at those three moments because because there there were moments of of heightened activism let's say which also brought people together from from different backgrounds the 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 most obvious case is is the paris peace conference Mm -hmm. but um but 1925 or several events in 1925 did so also as, as did the uh, Italian invasion of Ethiopia. And then I introduced this, this concept of, of shadow diplomacy by which I mean essentially that increasingly foreigners with access to diplomatic channels act as proxies for colonial subjects. You can see that during the, during the Paris peace conference, um, when, when, for example, Egyptians to some extent, uh, operate as spokesmen for Tunisians and in particular Al- Algerians, um, or, or when Ho Chi Minh increasingly begins to cooperate with, uh, Chinese communists, well, later Chinese communists, uh, or Chinese nationalists at the time who, who, who are also, um, uh, involved in activism because of the the Paris peace conference there, there's a wonderful book by Eris Manela about about this of course <laughs> um, so and 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 Ho Chi Minh increasingly for example approaches uh, chinese activists chinese nationalists in paris at the time distributes leaflets about the demands of the vietnamese people at the meetings of those chinese activists uh, compares himself to those Chinese activists, and the Chinese activists increasingly actually do disseminate the material that Vietnamese activists such as Ho Chi Minh uh, give them so they act as proxies or spokesmen for 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 those vietnamese um activists at the time there, there There are essentially two reasons for for this uh cooperation one is that simply in in those moments which which you know Kindle or stir more political activities from different people. They they increasingly interact, which which means that this shadow diplomacy, in in which, for example, Chinese work for the Vietnamese, increasingly becomes um, probable. But the other thing is that it allows people like Ho Chi Minh or let's say Algerian activists during certain moments to escape the the French uh, security radar because because the french are not so interested in what the chinese are doing or what the egyptians are doing um so so you know it, it is a way for or let's say senegalese working with haitians of finding subterfuge um among foreigners who who have access to diplomatic channels and can legitimately uh, operate in in the arena of international relations which which uh, colonial subjects cannot
0: what about the role of political parties? And I guess I'm thinking very specifically of the French left um, and of the, of the international left and of, you know, the role of communism in this story. I know there's a focus on it in Chapter 6, but um, when we think about anti-colonial activists, especially, there is certainly this important set of connections with communism in France. So what can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so communism and both the Comintern and, and the French Communist Party are absolutely crucial. <laughs> In, in this whole story of, of politicization for for various reasons. Um, so most anti-colonialists, almost all anti-colonialists sympathize with, with the political left. And within the French left-wing political spectrum, the French Communist Party is really the only one that systematically adopts anti-colonial or anti-imperial positions, um, at least on paper. So 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 the communists are, are by far the most important. Uh with with Lenin's book on imperialism, they also furnish them, you know, with 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 a coherent theory about imperialism, which of course people like Ho Chi Minh uh adopt pretty early on. But the Communist Party, the French Communist Party and the Communist also become very important organizationally. Um in essentially in providing a platform for anti-colonialists to speak and again the 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 communists are the only political player in in the in the French political spectrum who do that systematically although on occasion um more reformist critics of colonialism for example from Algeria also sympathized with with French uh, socialists and and work with them to some extent, but but the Communist Party is is the most important. One reason, one or the main reason for for the French Communist Party to adopt um, anti-colonial positions is is ideological, um, but but it is also because Moscow tells them to do that. Um Apart from ideology, actually the French Communist Party doesn't have a whole lot of incentives to, to you know, enlist uh, people from, from the French colonies or help anti-colonialists from the colonies in, in the metropole. It's an electoral party from early on. Colonial subjects cannot vote. Um, so, so, so there are relatively few incentives to do that apart from you know, ideology and Moscow telling them to do so. Um, and and but 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 to some extent the, the French communist party does so and and thus provides also a platform for exchange um for for people from different colonies one of the famous examples of this which i treat also in the book is a group called um Intercolonial Union
0: mm-hmm.
1: and which was founded in 1921 and which was then essentially financed by the by the French communist party it it, it breaks apart in 1926 27 into different, uh, national subgroups, like, a, an Algerian group called Etoile Nord-Africaine, mm-hmm. um, Vietnamese, uh, Independence Party, and, and a few more groups, um, which then go their own ways organizationally, although they, they then in certain ways become reorganized by, by the Comintern directly from Moscow. So, so this is taken out of the French Communist Party. Into the remit of of Moscow, which organizes them in in a more internationalist way, if you like, and treats them as if they were national parties. So, so this reinforces, in a way, this 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 dynamic of nationalization that that you first have have an intercolonial group, but it eventually becomes a series of um, common ten orchestrated nationalist parties. Um, uh, from 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 different parts of 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 the French Empire, this is then advertised at, at a famous conference in Brussels in in 1927.
0: Along the lines of you know the book's pursuit of ideological traces and influences, one of the, the contributions that you're making here that I found really fascinating is the ways in which um, anti imperialism references republicanism and the French Revolution and the ways that this very specifically French notion of Human rights or equality—that these notions become a kind of lingua franca. Yeah. So, so, so first of all,
1: um, this this harks back to to one of your earlier questions: in w- what is specific about Paris? Mm. And and one of the things that is specific about Paris, or maybe France rather than Paris, is is this republicanism, which you, which you don't get necessarily for for the British Empire, and and it has to do obviously with the fact that. Um, France is an empire, but also a republic, which which is mm-hmm. uh, an oddity, let's let's say, on on, on the world map. And so, what, what anti-colonials do a lot is that they adopt this republican language of equal rights, and then hold it against against the French colonial state basically charging the french colonial state with practicing hypocrisy which is absolutely true so how how can you speak of liberty égalité fraternité and have this slogan you know grace the 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 walls of indochinese prisons let's say mm-hmm. this is the essential rhetorical move that that they make and this is this is where they adopt this this republican language which then absolutely pervades all of those groups regardless of whether they are gradualist reformers or, um, radicals and, and communists. Um, although, although their, 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 their language, of course, uh, differs, but they all adopt, uh, in one way or another, this, this Republican language, let's say. Um, but it, it also speaks to, to a current topic, which, you know is is debated um very much at this moment and and in particular if if you look at the press coverage of of recent uh events in in france and in particular terrorist attacks and that, and that has to do with the degree to which French republicanism and assimilationism disallows ethnic identity politics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and and i so especially in britain perhaps more so than even in the united states there's there's an argument that um well you know french republicanism and and assimilationism um essentially ended up as as a head in the sand attitude towards um towards ethnic problems in in the banlieue and uh, you should adopt a more multicultural approach which which allows um ethnic difference and, and therefore is much more effective in, in dealing with this. I, I think some of this is true. Although what, what I see in, 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 in the, in the 1920s is that this Republican rhetoric is, is not at all incompatible with, with organizing your political associations on ethnic grounds, let's say. So, so, so most of the groups I look at both adopt this Republican language. But at the same time, feel entitled to to make claims um, about ethnic particularity and and difference. Um, so so make non assimilationist arguments, if if you like. This this is one of the things I found I found most interesting in view of current debates um, about the French Republic and how the French Republic relates to to ethnic minorities. So in, in the 1920s, I, I found that many of the people I deal with. Um, find this republicanism, uh, I felt, surprisingly compatible with um, ethnic identity politics.
0: You describe the book, Michael, as a prehistory of the third world uh, and and of the nationalisms, regionalisms, and decolonizations that come after World War II. So I wanted to ask how you see this book as a sort of a genealogy of the post-war period and, and of this notion of the third world in particular. It's
1: in two ways, a bit of a complicated and perhaps even anachronistic argument to make. One is that I don't really deal with the, with the post World War II period. So, so that I don't necessarily trace what happened to the people that I, that I look at in the book after World War II. It's, it's rather a premise that I, that I say, look, so, so many of the people who rose to prominence after World War II, and I'm not going to look at that. Um uh, have have this genealogy in in the interwar period. Now let's look at the interwar period um which I then posit uh made them what they uh, eventually became. Um so 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 the argument about eventual decolonization um I, I don't really fledge out um very much in in the book it, it it's more it's more of of a premise. Now the the term third world i thought about that a lot and whether it was useful to uh to to employ that that term and i'm still skeptical again mm-hmm. it's it's a choice for lack of of a better word um i i could have said non-european or something like that which which i felt didn't sound very nice either um and, and since I also deal with, with Latin Americans, I, I wonder, you know, a, a catchy term, um, that, that made clear, uh, what I was talking about. Although I do think that, um, many of, much of the rhetoric that, that I analyze in the book later pervades, let's say the conference of Bandung or, um, or, or the tri-continental, um, conferences that, that come out of Cuba and, and also this term, uh, third world, which, which of course is, uh, later also Parisian in, invention in, in the 1950s. So, um, so, 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 so I do think there's a genealogy of, of this talk about, you know, oppressed nations having something in common and having to address their problems in common that I can see already in the 1920s, which then really pervades um this this third world discourse uh, later in after world war two. The the other question of course is is whether it's useful to to employ the term nationalism which it's which is also in the title and I discussed mm-hmm. that in, in the last chapter of of the book. Uh, there's there's now a strong trend in the literature to to be skeptical about the term nationalism, associated especially with with Frederick Cooper's writings. Who, you know, who he insists very much on 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 the long term availability of alternatives to nation states, and that 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 the outcome of nation states um, wasn't inevitable, and mm-hmm. and we should look at federal alternatives or imperial citizenship options that. Really lingered on in into the in, in, uh, up until nineteen sixty um, and then uh, only very late in the day became undone. he claims um, I by contrast, for various reasons um we don 't probably have the time to go into them, treat uh, most of the political movements and activists I deal with as nationalists, nonetheless um uh, first of all because they they did play a role in eventually bringing about independent nation states many of them from very early on this goes especially for for asia very clearly advocated independent uh, nation states from from early on so if anything you know the 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 argument that that nationalism only became important very late can be made about Africa much more than it can about Asia. Um, so there's a series of, of of reasons why I treat them as as nationalists anyway, and 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 that is something that I try to explain in in the last chapter, the eighth chapter of the book.
0: So Michael, we've talked about just about every word in the title, but I want to ask you about one of the words that's not specifically in the title, but that I kept thinking about as I was reading the book, which is race, particularly in a France where that can be such a thorny. Issue to discuss because of a kind of persistent refusal of it as a category. So,
1: race, of course, is is absolutely crucial in in so many ways, and for uh, for almost all of the, although not all of the activists I, I look at. Mm. Um, now, first of all, as as you say, and as one might expect uh, in in the French context. The term race or, or ras is not used very often Mm -hmm. in, in the sources that, that I look at. And that, and that of course is, one can argue, you know, is a silencing of a term that, that is nonetheless crucial. Um, the term, the term racism, um, is sometimes used or racisme, although interestingly, Mostly by, by, most often by Algerian activists, Hmm. um, who, who were also in many ways the most discriminated against, um, Although not only for racial reasons, of course, but but also for it, it is an intersectional overlap of 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 many things: legal status, you know, social profiles, where do they work, and so forth. So many of the Algerians, for for example, are are from Kabylie or or Berber-speaking Algerian Muslims, whom the French colonial state famously construed as as white. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm. so race is is one is is one in a set of categories um that that shape the experiences of of the people i look at and and not always the most prominent one among them so on many occasions i i speak of ethnicity rather than race which is of course not the same thing But, but, but as a somewhat more, um, let's say less biological category and, and, and more capacious category that, that, that also deals more with everyday practices that, that are not necessarily reducible to, to race. But race is, is, is of course crucial to, to the experience of, of, of most of the people I, I look at. And you can argue that, you know, some people, let's say Latin Americans who are a lot more bourgeois, um, Different legal status, but are also treated differently for for racial reasons. Uh, mostly urban white elites.
0: Well, Michael, there are about a hundred other questions I'd like to ask you, but I'm just going to ask you one last one, which is, what are you working on now?
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> um, out of this book has has come a greater interest in urban history. And in particular, I've, I've become interested in the history of ethnic segregation in cities, which, which is already a small part of this book, although spatially speaking, um, Paris wasn't a terribly segregated, uh, space in the interwar period. <laughs> and, but, but I have become very interested in this, in this topic in general. And I try to uh, look at it, um, from from the angle of several cities, especially in, in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century. I'll probably pick a few Latin American cities I know well, um such as Buenos Aires um and and Havana and compare them to a few Southeast Asian places. I, I just went to the archive in Manila, mm-hmm. which is a famously segregated city at the time. Um and, and so that is a project I I will try to pursue in the future whenever I have the time um because I'm not teaching. <laughs>
0: Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. Michael, I just want to thank you so much for writing the book and for taking the time to speak with me about it today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program.